Chapter 3, verses 9 through 11 of the Great Commentary of Cornelius Elipedi, St. Matthew's Gospel, by Cornelius Elipedi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. And think not to say, etc. As it were, boast not to say among yourselves, to think and to flatter yourselves, as relying on the thought, that ye have Abraham for your father. For the Jews were accustomed to confide and boast in this, that they were sons of Abraham. This was their reply to Christ, We be Abraham's seed. It is this vainglorious boast of theirs which St. John here denounced. And the sense is that Abraham was a most holy patriarch, to whom God promised blessing and salvation, which was to be handed down to his children. Now we are sons of Abraham, and therefore heirs of these promises. Let us live therefore as we please, and refuse all worthy penance. Yet shall we be saved by this, that we are the children of Abraham. God is faithful to his promises, that what he hath promised he will surely perform. Were it not so, Abraham would be defrauded of his sons, and of their salvation promised by God, and the race of Abraham would come to an end. John answers as St. Paul does, that the sons of Abraham, the heirs of the blessing and salvation promised to him, are not reckoned by carnal generation, but by faith and virtue, which are spiritual things, insomuch that not those are counted sons of Abraham who are born of Abraham, but those who imitate the faith and holiness of Abraham. Wherefore, even if the Sadducees and Pharisees and the rest of the Jews were to fall from righteousness and salvation, God would bring others in their place and give them to be, as it were, children unto Abraham and successors to his blessings. So that, although ye should perish, O ye Jews, the blessings promised to the seed of Abraham will not perish, but will be transferred from you who are unworthy to those who are worthy, viz. the Gentiles. God is able, etc. John was preaching and baptizing in Bethabara, i.e. the house of passage, where the children of Israel under Joshua passed over Jordan dry-shod. Wherefore, in memory of this great miracle, Joshua set up in this place twelve stones, taken from the bed of Jordan. Rigmigius and St. Anselm think that St. John here spoke of and pointed out those very stones. So also does Pinedia. These stones were types and figures of the Gentiles, buried beneath the waves of error and ignorance but at length raised up by Christ and his apostles from the lowest pit of idolatry into the church by baptism to the glory of being sons of God. You will ask, how can this be true? For how can sons of stones become stones of Abraham now dead? And even if stones were raised up and endowed with life, how could they be born of Abraham? Many here betake themselves to allegory. But I say that the words are true in their plain meaning, as they stand. One, because God is able of stones to form men, whom he, by his will and intention, could reckon to Abraham for sons, or whom Abraham might adopt, just as God was able to form Adam out of the ground, and from barren Sarah to produce Isaac unto Abraham. St. John seems to allude to Isaiah 51, Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged, 
i.e., as he goes on to explain, look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. 2. Physically and precisely, as God turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt, so he's able to turn stones into men, and children born of Abraham. Yea, God by his infinite power is able wholly to transmutate any created substance whatsoever into any other substance and that either as regards matter or as regards form. For it suffices for a real transformation that the accidents only should remain the same, as is the case in transubstantiation, where the whole substance of the bread of the Eucharist is converted into the body of Christ. St. John compares the Sadducees and Pharisees to stones, both that he might signify their hardness and obstinacy and evil, as well as humble their pride. As though he said, O ye swelling Pharisees, of yourselves ye are no better than stones, and that wherein ye are most excellent than stones ye have from God. It was God who made you children of Abraham, and if ye be proud, he will blot you out from the family of Abraham, and will raise up others in your place, and those even of stones, if it so please him. Lastly, God is able to turn any stones whatsoever into men, and endow them with the faith and piety of Abraham, and so make them spiritual children of Abraham. For as the Apostle says, Not they who are sons of the flesh are sons of God, but they who are sons of the promise are counted for seed, i.e. are reckoned as the seed and sons of Abraham. Whence mystically God raised up out of stones children unto Abraham, when he made Gentiles, who were rough and unpolished, and who worshipped stocks and stones, and were on that account likened unto stones by David. To become sons of Abraham by imitation of his faith, piety, and obedience, for he is the father of believers and of the just. So saints Jerome, Hilary, Ambrose, Augustine, Gregory, and all the ancient fathers. Euthemius adds, that there was a fulfillment at Christ's passion, when many who were hard of heart, seeing the rocks rent and other miracles, repented and believed in Christ. For now is the axe, etc. Here is another stimulus wherewith John pricks the Pharisees to do penance, and that speedily, threatening them indeed with the peril of being cut down and burnt up in hell. So St. Chrysostom, Euthemius, and others. Of these Euthemius says, the axe is compared to death, the tree to man. That is why the Greek is et kopt ete, is cut down, and valete, is cast into the fire, meaning it is upon the very point and verge of being cut down. Your fate, therefore, O ye Pharisees, hangs, as it were, upon a razor's edge. The extreme of your peril hangs over you. Destruction, death, and hell are gaping for you. Therefore, bring forth worthy fruits of penance, that ye may escape those things. The meaning is, the axe, that is, the vengeance and judgment of God, is laid to the roots of the trees, that is, to the life of each individual, that if they be unfruitful, as up to this present time is your case, O ye Sadducees and Pharisees, it may speedily cut them down by death, and cast them into the eternal fire. But if, on the other hand, they be fruitful and produce repentance and good works, it shall in a little while not so much 
cut them down as transfer and transplant them to the celestial paradise, where they shall produce the perennial fruits of eternal felicity, glory, and praise. You may say, surely this was true before the coming of Christ. Why then saith John after his coming, now the axe is laid, etc.? I answer because all this is more clear and sure since the coming of Christ. For Christ, for this very purpose, came into the world, that as the judge, king, and lord of all men, he might translate those who believe in and obey him to heaven, and punish the unbelieving and disobedient with present and eternal death. Therefore Christ by himself, by his apostles, and by John, clearly preached and promised to the pious the kingdom of heaven, and threatened the wicked with hell, that they might know that in his hand is their salvation and their damnation, and that by turning to him they might escape hell and be put into the way for heaven, and that he was able immediately to do all this, and that he would shortly do it, since there was no longer any excuse of ignorance or infirmity of for men, as there was to the uninstructed Jews before Christ, to whom present and temporal rewards and punishments not future and eternal, were promised and threatened by Moses and the prophets. Secondly, and more aptly, the axe is the judgment and vengeance of Christ, the king and the judge, wherewith he will cut off not only noxious but unfruitful trees, that is, the Jews, from the garden of the church, and from the salvation and the blessing promised to Abraham and his children, and cast them into the eternal fire, and shall in their stead plant the Gentiles who believe in him in the paradise of his church, which is, as it were, the estate and heritage of Abraham, who is the father of all them that believe. John, therefore, threatens the Pharisees with the reprobation of the Jews and intimates the calling of the Gentiles into their place, which was shortly afterwards accomplished by Christ, for he rejected the Pharisees and the Jews from the family of Abraham, that is, from the church of the faithful, and consequently from the kingdom of God. I indeed baptize you, etc. These words must not be connected with what proceeds, nor were they spoken immediately afterwards by John, but they were spoken as suitable to an occasion of which St. Luke gives an account and explanation. While all the people were in expectation and were musing in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered them all and said, I indeed baptize you with water, but he that is mightier than I cometh after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. From the sanctity of his life and the fervor of his preaching, and from his baptizing, the people suspected that John was the Messiah or the Christ, for none of the other prophets except John and Ezekiel had made use of baptism. See Ezekiel 36, where he foretold that baptism would be a sign of Christ. I will pour clean water upon you, and ye shall be cleansed from all your filthiness. John, therefore, puts an end to this suspicion, and declares that he is not the Christ, but the forerunner and indicator of Christ, and that his baptism was a prelude to the baptism of Christ, and a preparation for it. So he says, I indeed baptize you in, or with water, that is, with water only. This is a Hebraism, for the Hebrews denote the instrument 
by the preposition or letter tav or in, which is understood in Latin. So the Hebrew is bameum, in or with water unto repentance, that I may stir you up to repentance, and that I may prepare you by corporal ablutions for the washing of the soul to be received in the baptism of Christ. The baptism of John, therefore, was a profession of penance, whence those who were about to be baptized by him confessed their sins, not that there was thereby a condemnation of their faults, for this they were to wait for from Christ, but by means of his baptism in true contrition. He that cometh after me, Greek, O Herhomenus, i.e. the coming one, he whose advent is at hand, who is nigh us even at our doors, mightier than I, Greek, is Heroteros, i.e. stronger, more powerful, more excellent, and who in gifts far excels me, for he is mightier by his own divine and heavenly strength, whereby he influences not only the body as I do, but the soul by the spirit of his grace, and purifies it from every spot of sin. Whence Isaiah, among other titles of Christ, gives him that of strong. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Strong God. And verily he was strong, by the wonderful power of his divinity, overcame the devil, took his prey out of his hand, and overthrew his kingdom and transferred it to himself, who opened the doors of heaven and swallowed up death and victory, who abolished sin and brought in grace and glory. Again, Christ was mightier than John in miracles, because by a single word he raised the dead, drove out demons, healed the sick, changed the elements, whilst John by penance tamed the flesh, that he might subdue it under the Spirit. Thus was the strength of Christ the weakness of John. Whose shoes, etc. Mark adds falling down. St. Luke has, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. Each is true, which denotes the menial office of servants, who kneel down and put on or take off their master's shoes, and carry whose shoes when he puts on his slippers. John, therefore, is confessing that he is the servant and slave of Christ, that Christ is his Lord, yea, his God. Mystically, shoe denotes Christ's humanity, which is to serve by carrying it on his shoulders, or bearing it in his hand. He acknowledges himself unworthy. For this humanity, by union with the word, was of boundless dignity and majesty. When St. Bernard, the majesty of the word, was shod with the shoe of our humanity. For since shoes are worn on the extremities of our body, they are made of dead animals, according to St. Gregory and St. Jerome, they rightly signify the incarnation of Christ. By shoes, Theophylact understands Christ coming down to the earth, and descent after death into the limbus patrum. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Christ shall pour forth the Holy Spirit with all his gifts, in such abundance upon you, that he shall wash you from all your sins, and fill you, and, as it were, overwhelm you with grace and charity, and his other charismata. Christ did this visibly at Pentecost, when he was about to ascend into heaven. Alluding to these words of John, he said to his apostles, John indeed baptized with water, 
but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. Acts chapter 1. But invisibly he does it in the sacrament of baptism and confirmation, which is, as it were, the perfection and consummation of baptism. The contrast, therefore, between John and Christ is this. John baptized with water only, but Christ with water and the Holy Spirit. John washed the body, Christ the soul. And as the soul excels the body, so does the baptism of Christ excel the baptism of John, which was only rudimentary. So the Council of Trent and the Fathers, generally. Hence doctors speak of a threefold baptism, one of the river, two of breath, three of blood. The baptism of the river is when any one is baptized with water, of wind or spirit, when the catechumen in a prison or a desert where there is no water is truly contrite for his sins and wishes for baptism. For such a one is justified by contrition, which includes the desire of baptism, of blood when any one not baptized dies a martyr for the faith, for he is baptized in his own blood and cleansed from all his sins. With the Holy Ghost and with fire, so it is in all the Greek, Latin, Syriac, Arabic, Persian, Egyptian, and Ethiopic versions. It is as though the Baptist said, My baptism is by water, Christ by fire, and as fire is more powerful than water, so is his baptism more efficacious than mine. Certain heretics called Hermanani and Seleuciani are wont for this reason to baptize their converts with fire, as St. Augustine testifies. And you ask, what is this fire? 1. Origen understands it of a purgatorial fire, that Christ will cleanse his faithful, dying in venial sins, in the fire of purgatory. According to the words, the fire shall try everyone's work, and he shall be saved, yet so as by fire. 1 Corinthians 3. So also Suarez, out of Saints Jerome and Bede. 2. Hilary by fire here understands the judgment of Christ, that it will be sharp, clear, and dreadful, like fire. 3. St. Basil, Damascene, and Toletius understand the fire of hell, by which Christ punishes the reprobate. Whence the Baptist says, Ye shall burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 4. Some by fire understand tribulations, by which, as by fire, Christ washes his faithful people from their sins. 5. And correctly by the Holy Ghost and fire is meant the holy, fiery, and inflaming spirit, who is fire, that is like fire, and as fire burns and kindles. It is a hendiatus. The Holy Ghost is, as it were, fire, purges the faithful from their sins, kindles and illuminates them, raises them towards heaven, and strengthens them, unites them closely to himself, and like fire, transforms them into himself. Hence at Pentecost, the Holy Ghost glided down upon the apostles in the appearance of tongues of fire. Hence St. Chrysostom, by adding the mention of fire, he signified the efficacy of the Holy Ghost, the vehement and unconquerable strength of his grace. Hence in the primitive church, the Holy Spirit was wont to descend in the visible appearance of fire upon those who were baptized and confirmed to denote the complete purgation of their sins and the fiery love and the words of fire with which the Holy Ghost inflamed them. According to that in Deuteronomy 4, 24, 
God is a consuming fire. And in Jeremiah 23:29, Are not my words as fire, saith the Lord. End of chapter 3, verses 9 through 11.